I'm excited to introduce our guest today, my dear friend. He is the host of Bitcoin for Breakfast. I would say he has orange-pilled half of all of the Scandinavian countries in Europe, but I'm probably exaggerating about that. Welcome to the show, Eric Dale. Thank you so much, Q, and good to see you again. It's great to see you too, brother. I did not do you justice with that introduction. We've already had one outfit change, by the way. I, I need to point that out. We have now had P go from shitcoin to cowboy. So you are a shitcoining cowboy now. But Eric, for our audience who is not as familiar with you, can you please give a little bit of a background of who you are and why you are have such a dear, near and dear place in my heart? So first of all, I'm not American, so I didn't do the whole costume thing today, but I kind of dressed out like the white paper, right? You, you nailed it. So I, I think that works. Yeah, you, you nailed paper. it. All right, guys, how did I, what's my Bitcoin journey? How did I get into this? I used to be a bit of a talent in politics, I suppose. I built a phantom career at a very young age in Brussels, where I started out advising some of the leading economists in the world in working on the euro crisis. So this was like 2010, 2011, that period. And that was a very, for me, a crash introduction to economics, straight into the fire of the international world. And at the time, you know, I didn't really know about Bitcoin. So I was very concerned about saving the euro and had a very humble learning approach to this. And uh, yeah, was involved in the work around banking union, was involved in the in the all the work until 2012 through this think tank called Bruegel. And that work was noticed. So I was headhunted to the European Commission, which is the leadership of the European Union, which is, of course, the birthplace of the euro itself. Um, where it's I, dark. It took a dark turn. It took a dark turn indeed. I mean, today I, I, had, to, I had to wash my hands. I, I was lying in the shower crying for a few years after that. But at the time, I was still I still had stars in my eyes and status and money and power, very, very alluring things for a 24 year old boy, which I definitely was. But yeah, that also was a very disillusioning experience, especially the third debt renegotiation for Greece in 2015, in which I would observe Varoufakis, one of the great minds of, of Europe, although I disagree with him on most things sit on the on the sidelines like a schoolboy who's been sent to detention while the rest of Europe decided the future of his country. And that was the moment that Europe broke Greece, like broke the soul and the spirit of the Greek people. And today, you know, they've sort of just accepted their fate. And that very disillusioning for me. But fortunately, they made a mistake. They dumped Bitcoin on my lap. Nobody else in the European Commission wanted to deal with Bitcoin. So they found the youngest fucker they could find at my level and dumped it in my lap. And, and that was my introduction to Bitcoin. And after about a year of that, I had to quit politics, redirect my life. Bitcoin is not just a store of value, it's a store of values. And spent the last five to six years now re, reorienting my life based on that, on that learning. I think the thing that Q is referring to when it comes to the near and dear place, you're probably talking about Belarus, am I right? That's the story you want. Okay, so back in the 2000s, Belarus is the last dictatorship of Europe. It's the last place that has the death penalty for other things than treason. And for that reason, it has not been part of the Council of Europe, the only country in Europe until the war in Ukraine that was not part of the Council of Europe. And it has no opposition. And all opposition is illegal. Well, now it does, but back then it did not. And uh, especially for the LGBT community, it was a very, very bad environment. And so we would spend a lot of time in the liberal organizations of Europe to collect money through the year. And then once a year, we would go to Belarus to give this money out to the opposition, the illegal opposition underground. But you couldn't just send money. 
because Lukashenko has got full control over all the banks and all the all the channels in and out of the country, right? You send some money to somebody there, and the KGB will arrest them tomorrow. No, that's not a misspoke. It's still called the KGB. Belarus never changed the name, so it's it's still officially a Soviet republic. That's like how far back into the past we're talking here. So yeah, what we would have to do was we would go to Riga, we would take go to a bunch of different ATMs, take out all this cash that we've collected through the year in cash, put it in a backpack, like a goddamn James Bond movie, fly in with a small propeller airplane into some farmer's airfield in the side of, of Belarus. No uh, fucking get way. Get picked up by some old Trabant, some shitty car, and driven into Minsk slowly by side roads so you don't go through the cost, the tolls with the cameras and shit. And then spend a few days to make sure that you haven't been followed or anything. And then, you know, there will be a meeting or something where you go around to these organizations, give them a bit of cash, maybe help them organize some kind of debate or whatever. Anyways, I did this a couple of times. Seemed so normal and like the only option at, at the time. Today, we just send them over lightning. <laughs> it's, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous, but it is that simple. Like all wow. of that, all of that. And uh, yeah, so the, everything Alex Gladstein talks about, everything the Human Rights Foundation is on about when they try to bring Bitcoin up at the Oslo Freedom Forum, for example, which was a brilliant event this year. I recommend everyone listening to go next year is, yeah, I think, I think it's very poignant in the context of that. Very good example. So that's wow. my journey. That's my story. Thanks for asking, Q. No, I, I think that that really sets up, I think, the conversation that we want to have with you today, because in Bitcoin, especially, you know, being the American men that we are, you know, we tend to focus on Bitcoin and even our audience, unfortunately, tends to focus on Bitcoin of what's it, what's it worth? Like how a number going up, number going down. And you hear these stories, you hear Alex Gladstein talk about how this person is using Bitcoin and this person is using Bitcoin. And it's not for the sake of I'm trying to get rich. It's for the sake of surviving for living. So to, humanize these stories it's, it's so vitally important i mean eric is for all intents and purposes like the scandinavian james bond in my opinion <laughs> uh, so. I'll, I'll be happy if i can be the court jester <laughs> but i want to talk a little bit just you know you went to riga this year and you went to the freedom oslo freedom forum you have stories like this of your own personal experience and you heard countless others do you want to maybe share and the, over the last like couple of years, is there any other story from Bitcoin through humanitarian lens where it has stood out to you so significantly that you haven't forgotten it? Well, nothing that is that touched me as directly personally. So these are more secondhand accounts, but something that does relate to my own home community is when the war in Ukraine broke out. And this obviously brought a bunch of different problems that were changing very quickly. So hard for people to orient themselves on the ground, people going in with humanitarian aid or with even journalists trying to get in to, to the areas that were interesting to cover. In the first few days, it was extremely, a very confusing situation. And the banks shut down and the ATMs shut down and money ran out very quickly. And we had some journalists from Scandinavia that would go to, to the east of Ukraine, to Kherson. And they, they needed a car to get around, but the local dealer wouldn't accept Ukrainian money anymore because no, no one, he couldn't deposit it anywhere. And he couldn't travel with it, such large amounts. And so he insisted he had to get paid in some other way. He suggested gold, but that just wasn't available. So what do they do? Well, they, of course, then get people to send them, convert money to Bitcoin, send them Bitcoin, and they pay the dealer 
with Bitcoin on the spot, giving them the car that they need to, to travel around and cover the events on the ground. And that's just one example of many in that like first month in particular that was extremely intense. We also had a group of people going to the border of Poland where we would onboard people that were coming across the border, which in the end, on a, to be honest, turned out to be more of a gimmick than it should have been because we also didn't know what how bad the situation was, why we were trying to respond to things as they were happening. And also in, in these kind of, stations, kind of situations, it's better to be safe than sorry. You know, if shit really hits the fan, you don't want to assume that things have been better than they are. So uh, we were on the border there and, and had people basically introduced by setting up a moon wallet and then getting their first $30. We basically replicated the El Salvador model, uh, get, but with a, with a free and open source wallet and not a, not a Chivo uh, system. So I suppose these are like concrete, cool examples from very, very recent times. And I think we'll see a lot more of that going forwards, for sure. I want to talk... Think, uh, if I can just add on to that, that this is something that I am very appreciative. I met you at the conference in Amsterdam. And one thing I really appreciated about that conference and conferences in Europe in general is this you're pointing to. The American perspective is very much about money. You pointing to the profitability thing of it, but even on the philosophical plane, and don't get me wrong, it's super interesting, the philosophy of what is money, all this kind of stuff. Cool, cool, cool. But we kind of covered it, right? Like, sorry, even Breedlove was way too late to start a podcast called What is Money? He popularized it, but philosophically that stuff has already been untangled and packed up. And I think what Europeans are really bringing into the fore right now is to connect that to culture, to history, yeah. to, to ethics and morals, maybe even to spirituality and religion. And we can add on many dimensions there that I think the deep history of Europe and also other places on earth, of course, but I'm talking in the context of as a European here. I'm very, very excited to see that come up more as a stronger perspective in the Bacon conversation. Yeah. That's yeah. fair. Are, you, are, are you really that surprised that a surprise that a former British colony that has only done one thing, which is to steal all other European ideas and then bring it over here and then claim it as its own? Are you really that surprised that the Americans are... Uh, what is it? Three, four years behind all the European Bitcoiners in their oh, no, approach. That, that was not my argument. Sorry, then I did not mean to sound so arrogant or arrogant at all. Uh, no, no, no. no. It's, it's not about arrogant. You also not. you texted us while you were saying that, just saying you know, fuck you for being American, and it was weird. Yeah, yeah. but it was mostly about the smell. Ah, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> that's fair. I smell fucking. That's, what, that's why I only do these video chats. <laughs> No, sorry. What, what did you actually mean? No, no, absolutely. I wouldn't say that anyone is ahead or behind the other people. We are, what we are doing is that we're seeing different communities that have different shared cultural frameworks that allow them to dig deeper into different spaces of Bitcoin, right? And so, of course, I'm learning a lot from our American friends in the spaces that they're exploring deeper. And I hope that Europe now can bring more of, of the space that we may be more competent upon. I, I, that's what I'm pointing to. It was not meant as a as a dick measuring between continents. No, I mean, <laughs> look, we, you caught the tail end of our our news and notes segment where we started talking about certain policies that the U.S. is pushing forward, and and like I yeah. claimed, very, <laughs> I'm probably a little bit overzealously that somehow I live in communist China, but you know, Europe is not is exactly like sunshine and daisies and rainbows all over the place. There is a legitimate conversation around rolling out a CBDC. I would love, especially given your background, what your perspective is on just how the ECB, how Europe in general is handling its current situation. 
And like, what would you prefer to see them do if you would like to see certain things change? So Europe is deeply traumatized by World War II and like collectively and to the point where people born today still have that shadow hanging over them in all the monuments and all the stories and all their grandparents and everything. How does that manifest? It, it manifests, it, it, of course, one thing is this extreme fear of war, which obviously, and you know, there the Chinese saying comes in, you often meet your destiny on the road you take to avoid it. And in the same way as the Versailles Treaty and all these things we did to stop Germany from becoming powerful again, planted the very seeds for the European civil war to mm-hmm. never end or to, to, to go on. Yeah, the story of Europe and the EU and the way that it's responding to things may have, a, have certain echoes to this, where there are things where we are so desperate to use the EU as this peacekeeping tool. And so we can only imagine that through the prism of federalism as, with the US as a, as a model. So we felt in the 90s, like the euro was an extremely important thing after the fall of the wall and, and trying to avoid that disintegrating into a new European conflict. So the euros in many ways was a, like a, a child out of this terror of just how bad it had been. You know, Europe is by far the bloodiest continent in history. So yeah, that really shapes like the way that Europe now deals with it, where partially Europe has become much less democratic after World War II because we now depend much more upon these sage emperors. We are so afraid of war that we are willing to give up almost any kind of freedom or democracy in order to secure it. And that has generated over time pressures and support even, even popular support. So this is not some, like it sounds very undemocratic in the sense that it's definitely driven from very, very few people, very committed and convinced have driven this forwards. But it's been, it's been fairly popular to, to leave all these policies and dreams to a relatively small set of bureaucrats in Brussels. Albeit when I say small, we're talking about one million people of just bureaucrats. So it's, it's pretty big, but, but still. Tiny you say a, a million bureaucrats is a lot of bureaucrats. It's a lot of bureaucrats. And then you have the problem that, so here I can actually speak with quite a lot of authority on this. I used to be a very much of a pro-EU in the 2000s. I was young, I was idealistic. I share that same cultural consciousness of knowing World War II and the EU was the ultimate peace project, the ultimate guarantor that as long as goods cross borders, weapons won't, as we used to say. And I was willing to make almost any excuse for why Europe as a, as a whole should have more power over the nation states if it meant that Europe could be more unified, more have, cooperate more, have a stronger voice in the world. That was why, how I conceptualized it at the time. Of course, the reality of this is not like that. Now going back into my actual experience of working inside of these systems, one morning I will never forget was the day after Denmark voted no to removing, so then different members of the EU have different exceptions from the treaties. Denmark has some of the most extensive exceptions and they voted to whether they should remove them or not. So whether they should become full members in a way. And they voted, no, let's keep the exceptions. And the next morning there was a crisis meeting in the European Commission, top floor, Berlamont, the presidential palace of Brussels, all the commissioners, all the advisors sitting around there, people saying like, what's the most important thing we need to do now? And number one point for, of everyone, under no circumstances must we let the Danish people think that them voting no will have an influence on the outcome. Because if they believe that, other people may be inspired to do also referendums. And that could go really well, wrong. 
So the priority from the leaders, from and not a single person. I was the only, the reason it was traumatizing for me was because I, to my honor, I would argue I was the only person who argued against this and said, "I'm sorry, but isn't this supposed to be?" A democracy? Aren't we supposed to take this opportunity to listen to a nation that has voiced its opinion on something? But I was immediately shut down and explained that that could be detrimental to the entire European project. Because what if other people also voice their opinions? So that was a very, like a moment when I realized that this system has, has, is, has derailed, decoupled from its, its roots and of its concern with normal people. But in defense of these people, they are still as convinced themselves that they are building a great European ideal, a great European dream, a, uh, the federalists of Europe. Don't you love to hear that, P, that like the, the evil Sith Lords truly believe that they are the good guys and that we're the bad guys? I mean, that's how it always is, right? No one is the villain in their own story. Mm. Everybody looks in the mirror and is like, I'm doing what is best for me and my people and my family. Including us. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Damn straight, my lightsaber ain't red. You best believe my I don't have a red lightsaber. Yeah, but even if you oh, did, yeah, you'd be not like, yet. Yeah, there you oh, go. That is cool. Not red. The and we talked about this. I don't know when this episode is going to come up. We did an episode We're with Q just, in Amsterdam. Just, oh, that that episode. Yeah, we did an episode with Q in Amsterdam called All Time High, in which we dove into some of the negative consequences of Bitcoin that we may often ignore. Sometimes we ignore them because they are obviously actually consequences of fiat that are triggered by the transition to Bitcoin. So no, we are we are unwilling to deal with the fact that actually, you know, we aren't entirely innocent. One typical thing is just the, the question that I use to shock people is just what if we accidentally kill 6 billion people? What if it's true? Like we are actually postulating, this is our theory, right? A lot of these people are only alive because of government support. A lot of this food production is only happening because of overexploitation of resources, of an inflated production line, of a, break this down, and you start seeing that the population chart of the last 500 years is like Bitcoin 2017. And no, it will not do to get rid of 1 billion people. It will go down and then get a bull trap. And then we need to have an 80% correction. What if that happens? Now, not saying that will happen, but you know, these are the kind of questions that I think are, yeah, I lost actually how we were connecting this back to the Amsterdam thing, but. No, I mean, look, you, you gave me, you gave me the next pathway. So you're good, Eric. We are. About to pull up in a second, Chris tagged P and I over the weekend on a very interesting post. And I believe this is from 2016, if I remember it correctly, of just in the US, of all of the different food subsidies that essentially are paid out not by like businesses, but rather by individuals. Okay, we don't have it up. Sorry, guys. But I believe if I remember off the top of my head, it was like the subsidies for corn and wheat were trillions of dollars. The are you government about the EU or, or the US? The, just the US. Okay, the yeah. US. They're giving yeah. trillions of dollars to these farmers to create these crops. And I remember looking through this list and I was like, that's poison, that's poison, that's poison, that's poison. Okay, I guess you could eat that, but then that next one's poison. So I mean, what's I happening say, in the EU? In Europe, we have something called CAP. And CAP is the Common Agricultural Policy. It was one of the original roots of the EU. And it remains to this day the largest budget post of the EU. 40% of the budget is just the Common Agricultural Policy. 40% of all money spent by the EU is spent on agriculture. And originally the idea was that this money would even out the disadvantages for farmers that might be competed out if they were part of a common agricultural market, right? So if you have had a farm for 800 years, 
in the same family and then suddenly you're going to be part of a common market with people who can produce the same potatoes much cheaper. You don't want to fuck up that family. That was the idea. But the reality, of course, is that those subsidies, like everything else, is, was quickly monopolized by those who were able to create super farms, those who were able to create, use the most resources, gather the most resources. And today, of course, the common agricultural policy is largely a tool to finance French farmers and Eastern European farmers at the expense of everybody else. And the result is a super centralized food production in Europe, the death of small farming, impossible to survive as a small farmer, very, very insecure food production should crisis really. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a disaster how these food subsidies have twisted the market. And I mean, today we basically have a planned economy entirely for agricultural produce in the EU and in Norway. Definitely in Norway, even worse. <laughs> hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. As the world moves increasingly towards the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will make it possible to materialize your assets in real estate. Through the collateralization of mortgages with Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will be launching lending solutions to allow investors to easily leverage their assets to purchase investment in owner-occupied properties. Moon Mortgage's crypto mortgage will be launching soon for home buyers in Texas, Florida, and Colorado, and will be open to investors in most states across the U.S. for investment properties. Welcome to the future of mortgages. Visit moonmortgage.io today to register your interest and learn more. Moon Mortgage Residential is registered with the NMLS under number 235334. Come celebrate Bitcoin winter in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from May 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLive to get 10% off of your tickets before prices go up. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. We're seeing some of that come to head too with the way the Dutch farmers were being treated earlier this year. Mm. Are there other pressure points? Like we unfortunately don't get European news as often as we should. But are there other sort of pressure points that are popping up now since the uprising with Dutch farmers that we saw earlier this year? No, I think that the failure of the Dutch farmers may. So this is one of those things that okay, I, I'm a little bit scared of taking this one because now we're going to do the thing that is the most taboo the most taboo of all civilization of all time. We're going to talk about how it might end. And <laughs> I, hey, look, uh, I wake up every day and I'm like, how do I get canceled by Bitcoin Twitter today? So yeah, excellent. excellent. Today, if today is that day, I, I welcome this journey. I mean, there's a great, actually, John Wallace had a podcast yesterday and he quoted from When Money Dies by Adam Ferguson, which I'm sure most of you are familiar with. And there's a point there in this book. Yeah, here we go. Anti-Semitism had been negligible before inflation. It was resented when the Jews bought all these things that had become much cheaper. The fact that these, that inflation will cause all forms of extremes to grow in Europe, you will see a rise of feminism and more extreme form of feminism, more extreme form of anti-racism and of racism. 
you will see more uh, polarization of all the uh, all sides. You will probably see a large increase in anti-Semitism for the first time since World War II. Like likely the Muslim minorities in Europe, which are about 50 million people across the continent, could become targeted if things become come to a head. There are vast, vast national differences here. So there are certain countries that have very different conflict lines. And it's not very easy to like untangle. It's not about like the percentage of a particular population or anything like this. But I do expect that we will see these kind of pressure points coming up in Europe in the future. More polarization, more conflict, more political violence, uh, possibly more members leaving the EU. Italy being obviously a, a potential candidate should things really unravel with the euro. But no, I think organized protest, it was never going to work. The EU does not respond to organized protest. So these farmers, like as much as I supported their views, what was going to happen? Like, they just don't have any power over the people who have power. So as, as a former EU advocate and like someone who genuinely was like in those rooms, in those conversations, like what or how would the EU, like what is a better approach? Because my understanding is like, if someone were to just go protest, I'm like, all right, great. Yes, go protest. Do as little work as possible so that we can continue doing what we're doing. What would actually be the thing that scares the EU? Hmm. Bitcoin definitely scares the EU. Yeah, what scares the EU? What scares the EU is definitely this integration that more countries chooses to use Article 51 and leave Article 50 and leave the EU. The, the thing that really scares them on a more short-term basis, of course, sovereign debt. Europe is in a different state. A lot of people here will have read a lot about this on Twitter, but Europe is in a different state than the US when it comes to the monetary policy too. We had a far more precarious sovereign debt situation in 2008 to 2011, and we over leveraged our central bank dramatically in order to provide cheap liquidity for these countries to survive year by year, right? So when you the interest rates have been held artificially low in negative territory for most of these countries until today, and inflation has been forced to maintain itself at a level where this debt was supposed to be slowly eroded away. That have worked until now. But now, of course, inflation is coming to the point where people demand some kind of action. And the European Central Bank can either choose to have half of the Eurozone go bankrupt, even if you push it to 4 or 5%. I find it very hard to imagine how, how Spain and Italy and Greece should be able to make their payments. And that will quickly then cascade to the other countries and... You could easily imagine even Germany going bankrupt in a scenario like this. And then what's the what's left of the EU then? There is no solidarity anymore. There is no more unity. There's nobody to bail anybody out. There's no currency that anybody trusts. And yeah, and that will have been then a destiny that we will have met on the very road that we took to avoid it. So this is the warning that critics of the EU have often come with, that the EU is not a bad idea in itself, but if you see the EU as a never-ending road towards centralization, then, yeah. A better alternative would have been free trade agreements that could have had overarching frameworks. An even better solution would have been no trade agreements. Remember that trade agreements is a very modern phenomenon. Originally, trade happens between individuals and businesses, not nations. So nations don't trade. <laughs> People trade. And so the only reason why you can't have a direct trading relationship with the farmer in China today is because the countries insist on getting involved. 
it's not obvious to me that with Bitcoin that's necessary. So maybe there won't be a trade balance to deal with. But, but that's a that's a bit of an off topic. I'm ranting. I have whiskey in my cup. If I if no, it an please, for this. please drink it, <laughs> P. You're gonna have to. I think hijack this conversation, take it back, because I'm going to go down this rabbit hole for a second at least. No, go for it. I find it super interesting. So, while I, I do agree that there is like the necessity of international trade was sort of foisted on people because our governments wanted to get involved, there is a degree of A, there are certain products that in America we could not grow or sustain, but our citizens require or want it demand it so that our country our nation state our leaders go out and create these agreements so that we then can buy that product but there's a secondary component to what you said where i'm a little i i don't think i agree with you and while no i can't individually go to a farmer in china and be like i want your cuts of meat because those that's the best beef i've ever had like you're right i can't do that as an individual you can but you actually, have to pay customs you, you can't can. but then if I own a business, like I could set up my business and sure, there are going to be taxes. There are going to be other things on top of that, but there are ways to create that trade amongst individuals or smaller groups that don't necessarily, I don't need to call some US government official to get my deal done. I'm going to have to pay taxes. I'm going to have to pay all of these fees and those fees are inherently unnecessary because you're just a middleman. Like the easiest way to explain this is if anyone is familiar with like the role of just like an agent selling your house or mm. like a real estate agent, like they get two to 5% of that house for what hosting the, what's called open house that you probably could have hosted and showed a better tour of your house. And they got 2% of that sale because it's just a required middleman in this process. So my, where I don't necessarily agree with you is we can do it. It's just that middleman that it's created. I genuinely want to know, like, like I fully believe that borders are blasphemous and it it's laughable. I'd love your take just on how, especially in Europe and the Eurozone, these borders have changed so much that it's almost like if you were born a hundred years ago, you actually could have gone to that point and just done a trade and settled it no problem. But now Without today, bringing a passport. If you don't bring a passport, you're not even going to be allowed into that store, let alone into But a hundred years ago, if you didn't have a passport, you could have walked all the way to China. Nobody would have cared. Right? And like- but so, so this is actually comes back to a better example of the reality of this, I think, is actually prison populations in the U.S. since 1971. It's an excellent example of how, <laughs> of how prison populations in the U.S. were completely stable for like 300 years, it's like since before you became a country <laughs> for, as, a share of, as a share of population, you know, until you suddenly realized that you could print money. And of course, yeah. when you can print money, there is no limit to the amount of morality that you could enforce. Any idea, anything that you could correct, don't like skateboards, don't like weed, don't like this hairstyle, don't like hoodies, like whatever, you know, like we have the money for it. We can, yeah, exactly. Jail time. And so, you know, you have the money for, to enforce whatever you want. And that's basically what happened with Europe after World War One. So until World War One, it's not that nations couldn't have like, I'm sure there's been one uh, megalomania king or two that's dreamt about the idea of 
enforcing borders the way they've existed since World War One. Before that, but governments were five six percent of the of the GDP, and taxes were around five to ten percent of your total yearly income, including all kinds of fees and whatever else. But then World War One happens, and it became so expensive so quickly that all the foreign reserves were spent up within months, right? And all these countries, none of them wanted to give up because they ran out of money. So they all like collectively, basically one by one, leave this gold standard and, and figure out that as long as everyone does it, it actually works. Like the, the Gresham's law doesn't apply if there's no good money to run to. And so, so after that, you know, you see the spiraling of, of two things. One, that borders are necessary to imprison your population. Very important. People should not be able to leave too easily. Norway is the perfect example. It's a gilded cage. The U.S. is a is a is another example where if you leave the U.S., like the amount of times the IRS will follow you everywhere, right? And no matter where you go, you can't really leave. And that's that's the that's the purpose of it. But that wouldn't have been possible without that expansion of of capital, without that expansion of money. So if you take that fundament away, what happens if you change the monetary system? What happens if you no longer have the ability to pay for such things unless you convince other people to pay for it first? Actual money. Well, maybe most people would say that, okay, I, I'm not necessarily against having border checks, but I'm not willing to pay any of my money with it. And you're not, not either. And you're not either. So borders sort of disintegrate in its power because of that. Same thing happens with prison populations. Same thing happens with educational control. Same things happens with, in, in our part of the world, where you have really shitty hospitals, but they're free. And then you have an educational system that tells you that they're the best hospital in the world at the same time. It's the most fucked up little thing. Uh, but that's a very European thing, right? Hospitals, uh, education, healthcare is for free. Uh, the education system tells you it's the best healthcare in the world, but it's actually the shittiest healthcare you've ever come across. And that, the whole foundation of all of that sort of crumbles. So very, very curious to see, see how that plays out. But I think we'll see much weaker borders in the future. So I don't disagree with you. I mean, uh, okay, so wait, so how do we relay this back to Bitcoin? So how does, how do these types of, of We're talking situations throughout the system? Bitcoin undermines the state's ability to exert ex excess power. There is a natural level at which state power exists. Mm -hmm. And historically, if you look at the last six to 8,000 years, it seems that around 10% taxation is the equilibrium between freedom and community. If you go beyond 10%, it tends to cause two things. You get less, it costs more welfare than you get back. So it actually becomes a negative sum game for people, most people, and it benefits a small amount of people. And it's instable. It causes a point of, of centralization, where, which goes on forever and continues to go on forever until it breaks, until it breaks down, like with the Roman Empire, for example. So oh, lost my train of thought there, sorry. Sometimes no worries. We're talking about basically like how Bitcoin helps us resolve this issue that we just you know outlined with with the state trying to sort of inject itself and control these types of trade operations. Yeah, it provides. No, oh, no, I think we lost you. All right, I I will chime in and just say this this little bit. If you are listening to this podcast after it's been recorded, please, please, please feel free to leave us a review and make sure you subscribe and everyone watching on YouTube, subscribe down below on the Bitcoin Magazine channel to Eric's channel. And of course, on Rumble up above right there. Shout out to the Rumble fan. We always appreciate you guys. And yes, I guess I'm a moron today. Sure, Jim, that'll be my costume. <laughs>
I mean, I am wearing. Thanks for, thanks for tuning in every day. I hope you are doing well today, Jim Johnsons. Oh wait, Eric, you're still muted, Eric. Eric, come back hey, to Eric, us. We can't hear you. Can you hear us? Oh, oh. Confused face. Eric's face is very confused for our audio listeners right now. He's he's running around frantically. He started a fire in the corner of his room. Eric, don't do it. Put out the fire. Save yourself. Come back to us. No, I do want to shamelessly audio. also plug in the top right of Eric's frame is the excellent Bitcoin book that will make a perfect gift for everyone's holiday Christmas. Oh, there you are. You should buy Bitcoin as Venice. That was the point of that. Welcome back, Eric. Which we have here. Yes. Yes. I, I had my Satoshi statue ready for the show. I got my Bitcoin as Venice. Got my Citadel 21 back here, but you can't see it. Uh, yeah. um, and if is I can it, make a recommendation it, for a friend of mine, actually, not for myself, but this is one that I, I really want to make a phenomenon. Norway is so lucky that we have gotten our own Saifidinamus. And in my personal opinion, his new book, which is out less than a week, so fresh off the press, just released in English on Amazon, is, in my view, a improved version of the fiat standard. And it's much more to the point. It's, a, it's called A Thousand Years of Inflation as a Policy. And it takes far more European anecdotes. So it makes the content, I think, more relevant to far broader audiences and extremely clear and well-written. This book is called Fraud Coin. Fraud Coin, A Thousand Years of Inflation as a Policy. And okay. the most curious thing about this book, which most of you will notice if you, if you read it, is that this guy has never heard of Bitcoin. He learned about Bitcoin one month before he released the book. And so towards the end, he has written in uh, his conclusion about, about Bitcoin. But that means, I now know the guy, I've, I've had some pleasure of talking to him, I know his journey. And that means that he has reached all of these conclusions, create, and figured out this entire journey that most Bitcoiners have listened to a thousand other Bitcoiners in order to figure out entirely on his own before he has met any Bitcoiners. And now, of course, he has discovered the Bitcoin community and he's just blown away. So now he wants to rewrite or, or reconsider a bit of the ending on this. Because he concludes with some that, that we need to, to consider some sort of scarce resource. But of course, he doesn't know about Bitcoin as an option. Oh, so, that's so interesting. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. So really recommend checking out Fraud Coin. This is by, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but it's Rune Otgard? Rune Östgård. It's, it's a very Norwegian name. And, uh, but I will share the, can I share the chat messages in this? I believe you can. Yeah. Feel free to, feel free to go for it. Yeah. Regardless, we'll put it in the show notes if, uh, if we can later. I'd also like to just point out, P, you are now 0 for 83 on name pronunciations. It's 97 actually, but yes, it's oh. true. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're right. In I the English language, for... I'm very good at pronouncing, but people's names, the names of companies, the names of important things, wrong every time. So it looks like I can't actually reply to the chat in here. Oh, we'll so, throw it in there. Yeah, sweet. Chris, if you can, producer Chris, can you toss that into the, uh, the YouTube chat so that our-, our Call him by his real name. It's Papa Powell. Excuse me, Papa Powell, Alcoholic Powell. Yeah, so, so check out that book and check out my channel, which is Plebs City. Yes. Plebs, like Bitcoin Plebs City, you know, like Bitcoin City. So <laughs> Pleb City on YouTube, that's, uh, that's not actually the name of the channel, but that's the English name we've given it so that English people can find it. <laughs> we, do, we do have occasional English content. In particular, I recommend an interview I did with Giacomo, uh, Giacomo oh, Succo, nice. which, was, which I thought was very good. Fantastic. So I, got, All right. I got something that came across my screen and I'm like, okay, nothing in life is this much of a coincidence. All right. So today as we've discussed, is the 14th anniversary of the Bitcoin white paper being released. 
But did you know that 505 years ago today, Martin Luther pinned his 95 theses? Okay, so that's fantastic that you bring that up. And of course, you saw my, or you know about my speech in Amsterdam, but that is exactly what it was. And I have actually just released that speech as an article. And currently, now this, I want to publish this on Bitcoin Magazine. So, for, so, so everyone who gets this link right now, you get a preview of what I'm intending to publish on Bitcoin Magazine. So I'm sharing now a link with you guys. You can send that out in the chat if you want. That's about <clears throat> how to grow a successful reformation. Because indeed, the parallels between our Reformation and the Protestant Reformation is extreme. And the, we, have a, we, have, we have a single set of superstructures, monolithic superstructures that control all information, that controls the language in which it's communicated, that gatekeeps who is entitled and licensed to interpret the truth, that provides all the education, all the welfare systems, and all the safety nets for everybody around them. But it's also institutions that everybody knows are corrupt, institutions that everybody knows all the flaws with them. Everybody knows that the priests are not as holy as they seem, that they are way, taking way too much money and indulgences and all this kind of stuff, right? And as this Catholic Church's authority becomes stronger and stronger, the pressure to do something about it grows. And somebody, Gutenberg, brings home the printing press very much like we invented the internet, the ability to copy and replicate and distribute information at a, at, a, at a speed that any sensor cannot keep up with. And when that happens, you undermine the status of this, this monolithic superstructure of the Catholic Church, right? So I'm going on a rant on this, but I felt like that's what you invited me to do. Yeah, <laughs> got you. Okay, it undermines the, the, the authority of the superstructure, and, but it doesn't happen right away. So first, the Catholic Church responds just like our nation states do today more indulgences, more taxes. How can you get away from the fact that people are starting to lose faith in your project? People are starting to question it. Well, less people are willing to pay your taxes. So now you have to make the people who pay taxes pay more. So they become first extreme as the states are doing today, where they want to tax more and more of our angles, surveillance more and more of our movements, because they know that they are slipping. The very foundation they're standing on is slipping. So of course, 1517, Satoshi, <clears throat> sorry, Luther uh, goes to the church wall and nails up his thesis, right? And this thesis, these theses are, for me, they are as fantastically beautiful as the American Constitution and as the Bitcoin white paper. They have such foresight in how, to, of course, for most people today, they are, they are theologically technical. But the primary point of it is everyone can have a peer-to-peer -peer relationship with the truth. That's it. You don't need... The, the church to interpret the Bible. The word of God is right there for anyone to read. And you can have your relationship with God directly, peer to peer. You don't need to go via the church in order to gain salvation. Right? Sounds familiar? You can have a direct, you can make transactions peer to peer between people. You can have a relationship between uh, 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 to truth without involving somebody to censor it. And you certainly don't need a third party like the state to grant you salvation through the welfare state or some bullshit like that. So the, the parallels here are, are tremendous. And, and I fear, well, now I sound excited. I fear that the parallels will continue and not all the parallels are quite as joyous as the high-minded, idealistic dream of peer-to-peer -peer relationship with the truth sounds. It also means 30 years war, the bloodiest conflict humanity has ever seen, bloodier than World War II and World War I. So happy days. 
I don't want to take us down the dark path. I want us to take us down the, the light, hopeful, and optimistic yes. path. Yes. However, I'm going to ask you a, a kind of a dark question. <laughs> <laughs> I've asked You'll this question Embrace before, the darkness. But I, I love your perspective on just the world, and I'd love your perspective on this. So especially it feels like over the last 10 years, we see more and more information going out about, oh, there's this hate group going on here or this troubling thing going on over there. There's another school shooting here, yet another black man was murdered and this, that, or the other. And we get swarmed with all this information. You discussed earlier in our conversation about how that time is coming. The rhetoric of all the extremes, we haven't even begun to really see it surface, but we will. You will see far more feminism of voices and ideas come out, far more anti-Semitic, far more pro-diversity, far more anti-diversity, whatever it is, all these extremes will continue to rise and their voices will grow. But do you feel at least over the course of the last like 10, 20 years, this growth in these ideas, in this narrative is actually not a growth, but rather we are seeing it documented and shared more often because it's easier to do so. So in fact, there isn't more racism today versus a hundred years ago. There's just more documented racism today versus a hundred years ago. I really hope I don't. That's probably entirely true. But I think the more interesting point there is the the fractionalization of democracy. So Socrates had this critique of, of democracy which has kept haunting democracy ever since, which is this idea that democracy, by definition, is founded on, e- on equality, on equality. And equality, by definition, is devoid of hierarchies and devoid of patriarchy, so to speak. And a system devoid of patriarchy and hierarchy is devoid of values. So nobody has any way to prioritize what's more or less important, what's better or worse. The result being that every single group, every single perspective, will demand equal validation, equal, you know, there, there is no hierarchy of what's, of what's right and wrong, of what's better or worse. And so you will get this fractionalization where democracy descends into a ton of different interest groups where everybody, intersectional, intersectionalism is the perfect example of this. It's, it's Socrates predicted exactly that <laughs> thousands of years before anybody wrote a book in the 90s, you know. So, so I think you know that that is something that is coming to a head. The 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 positive side to that is, of course, that hard times create strong men, and men here not necessarily referring to the to the gender, but the, the human strong people, the kind of people we need to get out of hard times, and the kind of people who we need to get out of hard times are also the ones that tend to create the good times. And usually, these cycles are triggered by some kind of technological advance, or at least it has been the last five hundred years that we can document. And, and that could be for whatever reason, either it's a technological advance that offers centralization, like the nuclear bomb, for example, extreme centralizing technology, both in, in terms of energy production and in terms of the monolithic structure of the world, where there cannot be any fractionalization in humanity because there's nukes, down, down to uh, the internet, or now, of course, Bitcoin. So I think that this, this is the technology that will trigger that next cycle of good times. And hopefully... Some technologies have proven more adept at avoiding the worst consequences of hard times. So making the landing softer, maybe. And hopefully Bitcoin, one thing that's very unique about Bitcoin, you guys know this, but I I guess I'm sharing it for the audience. Bitcoin is the first time we've had a defensive tool that is available, defensive weapon that's available to everybody. No, it's controversial to use the word weapon, but whatever, suck my dick. A defensive weapon 
that's available to everybody and that doesn't care how many nukes you have, doesn't care what kind of title you have, doesn't care about nothing, you know? So it's a shield and it's a shield that everyone can use. And it's curious to see how this cycle that we have observed so many times, if it does anything to that cycle. Hmm. That, is, that is my biggest hopefulness about Bitcoin, that maybe Bitcoin as a defensive tool will be able to make that cycle end more uh, prof- profitable for humanity than we have been able to before. So interesting. I need you to excuse my reptilian brain, but as you can see, I'm a, a dinosaur for Halloween. So Perfect. small brain, T-Rex kind of stuff. I need you to, to defend your claim that Bitcoin is a weapon. Are you trying to drag me into these Jason Lowry conversations? Um, yes. I'll answer for yeah. that. <laughs> no, Choose totally your fair. words carefully, think, sir. Yeah, yeah. But this is the best way to become popularized in, in Bitcoin, right? If you wanna if you wanna go a lot of podcasts, just say something like this. Now, you pull out a I mean, knife and just start waving it around. So, you know, Jason is a security expert. I'm if anything, I'm a I, I call myself a meme spreader here, but I'm maybe a sort of philosophical linguist and the way language shapes the way we see things and, and the way we understand and conceptualize things and so on. And I am definitely one of these people who use language in very broad senses. And so when I conceptualize of Bitcoin as a weapon, it's like, well, weapons have two functions to attack or to defend traditionally. Today, maybe the blurring of the lines is stronger than they have. And attack aggressive weapons have had a huge advantage in the last 500 years with scaling. They have been able to scale much more than any other kind of weapon. You know, shields, not so much, but guns, <laughs> yeah, bigger and bigger, stronger and stronger, all the way until we can annihilate the fucking planet. And so you've had a very big imbalance between this defensive and, and aggressive weapon. And what Bitcoin defends, of course, the, the, the thing that it defends is, is, is the thing that people might want to take from you, right? The very motivation for war, the very motivation for conflict itself. So not only does Bitcoin cause it uh, is Bitcoin defensive in the sense that it reduces the, the incentive to, to cause aggression or conflict because potential profitability is much lowered. It's much harder to take the Bitcoin, even if you take the country. But it is also a tool where if somebody does take your country, it is indeed something that you can bring with you to else or send to somebody else or whatever and thus defend and protect that life energy, that life force, if you want, regardless of how tough your asylum might be. Of course, this is not a perfect theory. And again, this is not an angle that I'm particularly interested in. This weapon thing is just like, I use it this much with much less thorough thought than some people have. So no, man, I know I know you're a peace, love, huggable little teddy bear. But not so little. <laughs> not so. <laughs> I, I want to shift now. We got about 30 minutes left with you. And I'd love to you know really hone in on just Bitcoin, specifically on, you know, that difference we touched on at the beginning of the conversation, the fact that the prioritization of Bitcoin by Americans tend to be more of its value versus, you know, the rest of the world. I'll just clump the whole world. So sorry, Europe and the EU, you're just part of the rest of the world. The rest of the, the world, two actually, of the world, America, not America. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Welcome to American Bitcoin. Yeah. There are use cases, you know, continuing to explore expose themselves is a very interesting way to phrase it, but I'm going to use that. There are use cases exposing themselves on a day-to-day basis. And I'd love it if if you could maybe share or without divulging too much of stuff you're working on, like what is a use case for Bitcoin that you would like to see in the near future? 
Whew. I mean, I think <laughs> first, when you ask for use case, I always say that you, the great thing about Bitcoin is that it only has one use case, which is to be money. And that's like half of the half of everything. So I don't like if somebody manages to make some other thing that has some fun with some art or something like this, even if that person, I think it's all scams. But even if it wasn't, it would be so uninteresting. It's like, cool, you found something that affects 1% of the world's population and wealth. I have something that is more than half. And that's the thing that is a protocol for really changing how we operate with each other. One thing that I am a bit... Sorry. Sorry, I mean, I was going to say, is that... How does how do you feel about things like the Lightning Network and like Layer Two technologies that are trying to leverage Bitcoin's Layer One to accomplish? Maybe Lightning is a bad example, but I'll ask: What do you think about the Lightning Network? And then what do you think about technologies that are being built on top of the Lightning Network? You know, so-called Layer Three technologies like you know value for value podcasting and things like that. Yeah, there's no Layer Three. Uh, okay, let's let's. No, no, please, yeah, bring it. Bring <laughs> the fire. Yeah, no, but I mean, the way I conceptualize that is pretty simple, right? I mean, Lightning is a, is a system that has limited capacity, but it has extreme scalability. And so it's great for most of the everyday needs for most businesses and people around the world. And we'll probably have what you call layer three solutions will probably be the platforms that most people will use to interact with Bitcoin in the future. I, I think Lightning does have two problems, which is the the scale in terms of the, how much you can send at once and to some extent security, although yeah, uh, not and the potential centralization, I suppose you could, you could imagine, I've heard a lot of good arguments why that's not such a concern and I'm not such a great expert on it that I should say something conclusive about it. If I want, okay, let me say something more interesting than this, maybe, and something more controversial, perhaps. I believe that the, the Nietzschean concept of God is dead is still something that's haunting Western civilization. And it has haunted us through World War I and World War II and with communism and Nazism. These are all proto-religions seeking to fill that void in meaning and moral structure and hierarchy that we lost when we no longer could maintain the tenets of, of in the West Christianity. Like after modern science and Darwinism, it's very hard to maintain the factuality of, of, of a lot of past claims. But we may have thrown the baby out with the bathwater. And the consequence being, of course, that we have, an ident- we have had about 150 years now of ruthlessness. And you see generation after generation doing this. The amount of identity crisis in the US youth is just ridiculous. Transgenderism is perhaps the best example of this. Anything to belong somewhere, right? So I have a little bit of hope that part of the reason this happened is because the world was uprooted. The problem that we globalized the economy and but without having a, a trusted medium to exchange things. And so that, that made local beliefs untenable, while at the same time creating all this potential for relativization of all kinds of ideas and values around the world. So going back to Bitcoin in modern times, I have a little bit of a hope and dream that I cannot say what kind of beliefs will be born out of it. But I do think that people underestimate what it means that Bitcoin is a store of values. And I think that a lot of things that will grow out of it, the hierarchy of values that will grow out of it, will probably be indistinguishable from a religion. Wow. So you said you were not kidding. That was a controversial statement. You basically were like, here's the thing God is dead, and that is where all the evils (laughs) of the world come from. Well, that's not all the evils of the world, right? I I mean, there are plenty of evils before God died, too. But (laughs) I know, I know. I'm um, totally joking. I'm just putting words in your mouth. But the scale of evil grows when you don't have the ability to coordinate over values. 
And I mean, one of the, like, this is something that's been covered way better by other authors than me, but in particular, Val Nahari's Sapiens had, I think, a pretty good walkthrough of this, of how religion morphs and changes and becomes a psychotechnology that allows us to coordinate in many different ways. And, you know, he takes this approach of prosperity to it primarily, like how do you coordinate the harvest and so on, with people have shared values with you. But I think it goes much, much deeper than that. It goes, you know, somewhat just obvious things like need for love and and care and community and family. Other things are, are deeper and more transcendent. Fear of death, shame, forgiveness, grace, mercy. What do these words even mean if there is no value of hierarchies? So, yeah, curious to see how, how giving ourselves this Archimedean solid point in the universe that Bitcoin gives us, if that will indeed provide us with such a place to stand that we can move the entire world. Eric, I'd love to ask you this question because this, this is just more of a philosophical question that I like, have grappled with throughout my life. I, for the longest time, was like, very, not only was I an atheist, I was, I would argue, anti-religious because at the core of almost all wars, I had found there to be a religious undertone of us versus them. And in the time I've spent studying all religions, with the exception of what the changed Qurans look like, there are very few instances that call upon violence as a means to, in any capacity. And my question is, do you feel as though if religion was never given to man, was never created, would we have still have fought as many wars amongst ourselves or would we have actually found greater peace throughout history? Well, we would still have been monkeys. There wouldn't have been, any, there wouldn't have been humans. Religion is, no, not at all. Like the evolution of humans is a, is a feedback loop between our stories and our biology. The genes don't just select the people who believe in stories, but the stories also select the people we mate with and the genes that we propagate, right? Hmm. So, we, so we select we select for over 100,000s of years in this reciprocal balance back and forth of people who are adapted to it biologically, but also who work within those stories. And that goes back and forth. And so the way that these stories shape us physically, biologically as humans, and therefore why, you know, when we talk about them being true, Instead of thinking of them as true in the sense of the way the moon is a real thing, think of them in, as, as true in the sense that their, their, their power over our lives is, un, is undeniable and very measurable in, by any stretch of the imagination, you know? So uh, I think the, the point that most people, and including myself, I used to consider myself a militant atheist uh, until my, my early 20s. And, uh, and that was always the, the breaking point for me, that my, I, my conceptualization of what religion meant was limited to this caricature that I kind of my, largely myself had created, right? It was me, myself, that I created this idea of what I thought religion was and what I thought other people imagined God was and what I thought all these words meant. And then once I had decided on what they believed, then of course it was super easy to just argue why, oh, there's never been a war without religion. There's never been, you know, uh, all of these things are true. There hasn't, because all... All we are is religion. All we are are our beliefs. That's the thing that makes you get out of bed in the morning. The fact that you think there is enough reason for you to do so. There is enough meaning provided. There is enough relationships and hierarchies of values to provide for it. So, okay, this wasn't very coherent, but uh, just sharing some loose thoughts on this. Because I think no, it's a super, I, I, super interesting question. 
I mean, look, you and I, I think just live on the same wavelength. So I, I got that, but I don't, I don't know if P really followed along. The point P that he is saying is that the reason that you got married was because you convinced your wife that you were normal enough based on the stories you would tell her about yourself. Over the next five to 10 years, she will learn what stories are true. <laughs> nothing but love for you brother <laughs> no i know i know i know i love it uh and you're well, I, I, think, I think philip uh, followed that uh, quite nicely <laughs> it all makes sense <laughs> so where do we go from here i want to i want to talk more bitcoin I feel like we haven't done bitcoin justice on on, on our conversation today eric and, and i'd love to just maybe explore a little bit about here we are 14 days, 14 years, apologies, after the white paper was released, you know, in January, the first blocks were officially mined and Bitcoin was given, gifted, however we want to frame it, to the world and society. When history looks back, not on, you know, the next chapter of what Bitcoin looks like, what will this, the first 10, 15 years of Bitcoin be remembered as and for by the history books? Depends on how far you go forwards into the future, but I think there will come a point far enough into the future where none of this will be remembered other than that everything that happened before Bitcoin existed will be considered dubious, prehistory. Things that are, are claimed mm. but not sure. Things that so, like, so like this sounds crazy for us today, but things like the Napoleonic Wars could become myth. World War II could become myth. Hitler is a prehistoric character. All of these people existed before we started writing things down authoritatively. There was this only, all this information is the same as when an Egyptian king told you about the tribe that he conquered. Wait, wait, how far in the future are you saying this happens in? Well, I mean, uh, again, I'm not going to hold you to this, but uh, no, I mean, like, what <laughs> depends on whether humanity survives as well, right? So, and also, uh, uh, like most people predicting about the future, I will look like an idiot in the future because I mean, we all I will, can, right? Right, away, out of, right away, out of the top of my head, I can already argue for why I'm wrong about this because we store information in a different way today and blah, 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 blah. blah. So, I'm just um, trying to get a sense of time scales. Are you talking like but, 10 years, a but, dozen but, years? But, but if, you're talking, if, you're talking, if you're talking more like how will our grandchildren think of, of this period? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, sure. Sure. Because I think to to strengthen Eric's argument, like candidly, if you were to just go to the next millennia, to the year 3000, say humanity does exist, Bitcoin does survive and become what we believe it can become, there is an argument to be made candidly that like stories that happen, we today in the year 2022, after the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus H. Christ, like the way we remember history, unfortunately, like some of those stories are legend and myth rather than fact. And unfortunately, I do think there will be a degree of, wait, they really let people do that? No, no way. Like if you go far enough into the future, yeah, like and, and right now there is a debate. Because there is even There's, that sense of like, sorry. No, no, I, I just want to say like right now you can go to certain parts of the internet and people debate and try to understand how did the Egyptians build the pyramids? How did Stonehenge get built? All of these like crazy things because they're like, oh, they don't have the technology back then. Like there's going to be a degree of that from the future looking at the things that we do and have now. 
Yeah. And there will probably also be a few, a few polls, a few poll the apostles. Some people of our generation, of the people who do a lot of content on this and who talk to a lot of people about this, will have an outsized influence in how people conceptualize what Bitcoin is, what's, what is it useful for, what values does it embed, etc. In the same way as, as the Apostle Paul largely defines the way we think of Christianity today. Like very little about what we think that Jesus said is actually from Jesus. It's all from Paul. So Paul is primarily like the inventor of Christianity in all for all intents and purposes. So maybe that's the kind of role that this generation will have a little bit down the road, where we will be considered this sage, this sage generation that was so wise and knew so much. But the interesting thing is we are just extremely fortunate because we're living at a time where this is all uncharted territory. It's a bit like every man, every boy has at some point had this little sting in his heart where he's a little bit sad that the entire world has already been explored. Like, right? You know that feeling. Oh, why, why did we already go to all the islands? I want to find something. And, and that is the territory where we are now blessed enough to be able to, to go out and explore and become the Columbuses of, or maybe a more palatable character of history, but still. <laughs> so I, ho I hope that that's how we're, we're seeing. Paul the Apostle. Paul the Apostle was the guy who wrote a ton of letters to congregations across Europe where he interpreted what he thought about what Jesus had said. And that interpretation then became the foundation of what we today call theology. So it will largely, <laughs> it's like, <coughs> we think Jesus invented Christianity, but it was just Paul that was really, couldn't stop writing letters. So P, they will build a statue of you if you just do enough. If that's what you've been looking for. That is the most tortured set of conclusions based on what we've just talked about, but I'll take it, I'll fucking take it. Yes, and don't be, don't be tortured. It's a beautiful world. There's no reason to cry. So Eric, I feel like this is the most appropriate question to ask you because I was grappling with this yesterday. Every single time I would set foot on my balcony and smoke a joint, in nature, can you think of anything that is a pure, straight line in nature? Hmm. A straight line in nature. I yes. mean, you have constants, of course. But I feel like maybe that's not... Like, I couldn't even justifiably create a case to say a tree would be a straight line. There are no rivers or mountains that are straight lines. Like, no that's what you mean by nature. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, it, from the, like when I look out, the only straight lines I can see in the world are man-made. So I want to, I have to ask this question now to everyone I talk to, because I'm fully convinced that the concept of a straight line is only a man-made concept and phenomenon. What, what are so we even angry. talking about? I'm so, I'm so like, angry. What is happening right question. now? This is your version what of is Mary. Line? Yeah. This is this my is, version of what? Is this, this, is, uh, this is my take on your very fuck kills. Uh, fair, fair. What's the straight line? Speaking of which. <laughs> well, first of all, it's a line that doesn't sleep with other men. <laughs> all right, so P, you're out. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not sure I know how to answer that. But my first thought something was to think to, about. Well, my first so thought was something like E equals HF, you know, Planck's constant or something. But all I can think of is like physics. And I, I don't right, think me... that that's like appropriate for the... 
let me bring it back to a, a really solid Bitcoin question. Yeah, sorry, Q. Mary <laughs> fuck kill, Mary fuck kill, Janet Yellen, Jerome Powell, Christine Lagarde. And there is a correct answer here, by the way. There is a correct yeah. answer. There is a, there is legitimately a correct answer, Eric. And I worry that you are going to get this wrong. Uh, probably but it's okay. Will. We forgive you. Probably probably because I'm not familiar with this game. I haven't heard this before, but I can't. Oh, you've never heard of Mary fuck kill? I understand oh intuitively. It's intuitively easy to understand. Exactly. <laughs> so... As the boy that I am, I, I'm going to save my penis from the trouble and immediately go. I would have to fuck Christine Lagarde. Sorry, but she is hotter than the others. It's just a matter of fact. Great. Skeletor. Great okay. On, on all hostages. already correct. That's okay. a solid correct. rage fuck right there. So who do I have to marry? I think I would, yeah, I would definitely probably marry. This is tricky because I blame Janet Yellen for more of the monetary policies. So she probably, in terms of pure justice, she probably kill her. Yeah. So I would say I would probably marry, right now. Marry, answer correctly. marry Powell and kill Yep, you answer correctly. You got to marry the man who has access to the money printer. Oh, yeah, 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 of course. Uh, that's, yes, it's actually the 10th anniversary for me and my wife today. Congratulations. Congratulations. So, yeah, she married the man close to the money printer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Fair enough. What, uh, taking us in a totally different direction, you know, you guys met at Bitcoin Amsterdam. I'm curious what other conferences you are excited about. You know, as a as a well-known Bitcoiner, you get to go to a lot of these events. And I'm curious which ones do you have the highest signal, which ones you go to for different reasons. Be excited about the next six to 12 months. So in Europe, there's no conference that has as much signal as Riga. The Baltic Honey Badger is one of our smallest conferences, but it is one of the most elite attended. So that's just one of those environments where pure signal and almost no, there is no shit going at all, at all. It's fantastic. In Amsterdam, great to see Bitcoin Magazine doing more in Europe. Hope to see more of that. Also trying to reach out to Bitcoin Magazine to see if I can work with you on, on some of these things. So that's, that, but that's a, a bit of a different thing. What I'm hoping for Bitcoin Magazine to achieve with that is, is the buzz and the size and the, to connect it with culture through some manifest and all these kind of things. This will probably have less of a signal for Bitcoiners. And that's okay. That's okay. You know, doesn't always have to, to, to touch all the bases. Plan B has a great, in Lugano, a great big conference. A little bit, I got to say, I'm a little bit skeptical about some of the people behind it. But from what I can hear from the people who were there, it seems to have been a great success. Prague has a great conference that's more oriented towards freedom and ideology coming up in June next year. They tend to also take much more of a freedom of speech approach to these things. So definitely recommend checking that out. And then the best conference in all of Europe is the Oslo Freedom Forum. And the Oslo Freedom Forum is not a Bitcoin, not a Bitcoin conference, but it's very, it has a solid Bitcoin component because Bitcoin is an incredible tool for human rights as we start this conversation talking about. And yeah, so very much recommend that. On the other side of the Atlantic, of course, love Miami, love, I haven't gotten the chance to go to Texas yet for the Bitcoin boom. But I really, really want to go and I really, really want to check out Pacific Bitcoin. So I hope, hint, hint, if somebody out there looking for keynote speakers and willing to play for a plane ticket, I'm, uh, I'm willing to leave, leave my continent behind. And then the one conference to end off this that I, everybody has to go to as a true Bitcoiner, adopting Bitcoin in El Salvador. It is as much for the journey to El Salvador and the joy of seeing normal people's lives transformed by Bitcoin and having the chance to use Bitcoin in everyday life, you will never look at a Bitcoin the same, no matter how long you've been in the space. 
So, all right, that's a long recommendation. We're hoping also, I haven't announced this yet, so I guess I should say, shouldn't say it, but we're also hoping to do a Christmas party in Norway this year. Although it's called Christmas party, it's going to be in February. So late Christmas party. But yeah, more information about that will come. Hoping to get Bitcoin Magazine on board to do something cool with that. If not somebody else, so if somebody else out there feels like there's something they'd like to help make happen, you know, my, my handle is right there. And yeah, that's it. Lots of cool stuff to, to check out. Love it. Eric, I just want to say thank you so very much for staying up late, chatting with us and spending some time sharing your wisdom and insights on the world and your perspective for our audience. How can they stay up to date with anything that you have cooking up? First of all, this has been absolutely great. I love chatting with you, Q. You're such a cool guy. Thank you so much for inviting me. Great to talk to you as well, Philip. I hope, we, hope it will be the first of, of many. I was, I was uh, hoping you would just leave me out so I could pretend to be outraged and be like, what the? <laughs> but no, yeah, it's been no, great, sorry. man. I've got too much empathy for that. So yeah, the easiest way is literally to follow Eurodale on Twitter. We have probably the world's biggest Bitcoin community. It's a Bitcoin maxi community of 5,000 members. And it's entirely in Scandinavia. But we have an English channel. So if somebody from the international community wants to meet the Scandinavian Bitcoiners, feel free to, to follow through my profile. You'll find links to all the different kind of things that I'm involved in. Of course, check out my channel. Most of my content is in Norwegian, but there will be English interviews. And uh, yeah, if there's anything I can help anybody with, I have only one talent, which is to be a meme spreader and a connector. So... If you think that you have some project or some idea or something to bring to the table, shoot me a DM and I'll see if there's some things I can touch you, put you together with. Yeah, that's it. Fantastic. Well, thank you again, man. And reminder to everybody, if you have not already got your Bitcoin 2023 ticket, you can use code BMLIVE to save 10% off of that ticket. You should do so. It's going to be absolutely incredible in Miami again. And of course, we have the print mag from Bitcoin Magazine. We're on the censorship resistant issue, which in very short order will become a collector's item as we are about to launch the Orange Party issue. My friends, Orange Party issue is, is literally drying. The ink is drying as we speak. We'll see you soon. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. The censorship-resistant issue of the Bitcoin Magazine print edition is available now. Grab your copy at your local Barnes & Noble store or head on over to the Bitcoin Magazine store and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your order today.